Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this group of people that you bring at this hour to to worship you and, and, and just to lift your name up. Lord, I thank you that you are our God and that you are in control in all of this. You know exactly what you're doing and we can have faith and and take comfort in your name and who you are. Lord, I thank you and I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this particular sermon, it's called Judgment is a Reality. The parable is the dragnet parable. And if you want to turn your Bibles to Matthew 13, verses 47 through 50, that's where we're going to be. And today I'm going to use the NASB Bible. I usually use the ESV, but, uh, you know, Pastor Bill's back there smiling. The thing that I, I noticed in the NASB is it, it uses the word dragnet. And this word dragnet is so important when we're describing this parable. My ESV just says net. But it doesn't quite describe it. You see, when most of us, we think of this word dragnet, we think of the TV series. (laughs) Except the sermon I'm about to share with you today is real names. They're not changed. and, And God knows exactly every one of us that are His. Now, the dragnet used in the days of Jesus at the Sea of Galilee is a little different than Sergeant Joe Friday's adventures catching criminals in Los Angeles in the mid-20th centuries. But the concept is similar. You see, if police want to find a criminal and they know this, this certain area, this neighborhood that they are in, they'll fence it off, they'll put up barricades, and they'll check every person in this area to see who is good and who is bad. Nobody, and I mean nobody, is getting away without declaring who they are, which one they are. And if we were being honest, biblically, we would say whose they are. So let's look at this text, Matthew 13, starting at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we look at this, this dragnet is different than a fishing net. It's like we see in John 21. This fishing net is is when Jesus tells them to throw the net to the other side of the boat. And this net was about eight meters in diameter. And when it hit the water, it it quickly surrounded everything that was in its path. But that's so much different than this dragnet. And look at 47 real quick with me. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. This net that, that Jesus is talking about here, this net is called sagin. And it's a different word than in John 21. This net, this this dragnet is 300 meters long. And it's 3 to 4 meters high at the ends. And it's 8 to 10 meters high in the middle. And it has weights on the bottom, so it drags on the bottom of the sea. And it has cork on top, so it floats. And everything, these these boats will will take one end, and and these people will stand on the beach, and and these boats will drag it in this U-shape. 
And every fish that's, that's within this net is caught and everything is dragged in to the beach. There's about 18 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. 18. And 10 of them are considered good. They're considered commercial fish that the people, the Israelite people, can eat. Some of those fish are like tilapia, sardines, and biny fish, which, which are all considered edible for the Israelites with their strict diet restrictions. Let's look at Leviticus 11, 9 through 12. It says, These you may eat. Whatever is in the water, all that have fins and scales, those in the water, in the seas, or in the rivers, you may eat. But whatever, whatever is in the seas and the rivers that does not have fins and scales, among all the teeming life of the water, and among all the living creatures that are in the water, they are detestable things to you. And they shall be abhorrent to you. You may not eat of their flesh and their carcass you shall detest. Whatever in the water does not have fins and scales is abhorrent to you. So no crayfish, right? No catfish. Those would be considered unacceptable. They would not eat anything that had scales. And if we're going to understand this dragnet just a little bit better, I want to take you back in time to when I was a fifth grader. My teacher was Mrs. McKee, and I absolutely loved Mrs. McKee. She was the best teacher. She brought everything to life. And we had this one assignment where we would go and we'd catch these, these crayfish or these crawdads. We'd go over to, to Keith Ryder Park and, and we had this little net that was kind of like this net that we're talking about, the fishing net. And I'm telling you, for three hours that afternoon, we tried our best to catch crawdads and we maybe caught 17 of them for 20 kids. The next day, this is where it gets good. My buddy Jackson and my buddy Jackson and I were always getting in trouble and I talk about him often. His faith is amazing. But we're sitting there and we find this net and it's, I don't know, it's maybe four feet tall and eight feet long and we're looking at it and, you know, our little minds are turning and we're, we're thinking and we see this bucket over here and we're like, huh, let's, let's walk over to Keith Ryder Park. And we walk over there and we take this net and we drag the bottom of these little uh, ponds at, at Keith Ryder Park. And we probably drag these for, for just an hour. And we caught well over 300 crawdads in that hour. There is not a single crawdad left. This dragnet has caught everything. And that's why this dragnet is so important. You see, it catches everything. Everything in its path. It's, it's going to take in everything. Everything is going to be caught and there is going to be judgment. Whether we're talking about crayfish or people. And I get it, right? There's maybe some conservation issues here and, and we actually ate the crawdads later on I don't know if they would still do that in school but I think it's very important for us to think about this this judgment act this judgment this, this reality and that none will escape the net let's look at verse 48 please and when it was filled they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers but the bad they threw away this text does not say that they, they tossed the bad back in the water. It says that they were thrown away. They were cast out. And, and being cast out is like not being with God. Being thrown away. These good fish, they have purpose. They are treasured. They are, they are valued. But the bad ones, the catfish, these things without scales, they are just tossed away. And where do they go? 
Well, if we're talking about people, they go to hell. So often I hear people, they talk about hell being used as a, as a scare tactic. But God, God is the, the God of truth. And, and hell is not a scare tactic. Hell is a reality. And so is judgment. And our God, our loving God, He must speak truth into our lives. He must remind us over and over again that in this world there are usually two ways. And it's so difficult to understand one way without the other way. I mean, how do we really understand joy without sorrow? How do we know good unless we can compare it to bad? How do we know righteous unless we compare it to the unrighteous and the evil? You see, there is moving and there is stopped. And I understand we all have different speeds of moving. But we're either moving or we're standing still. There's death and then there's life. There's a, a line in the beach. There's a line in the sand. And that line has to be the cross. If you're a theologian, you'd call that line justification. And on this side of the line, there's death and sorrow. And the Holy Spirit, He works in that death and the sorrow. And He brings that person to the other side of the line. And at some point, at some point, they put their faith and their trust in Christ. And their life is transformed from death to life. I love what Romans 6, 4-9 says. Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we may, might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so we will no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him. Knowing that Christ's death has been raised from the dead is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. Romans 6, I could go on and on. It talks about this. And I'm scared. So often we as Christians, we think that there are good Christians and there are bad Christians. There are different levels of Christians. There are different levels of being dead and different levels of being alive. I think it's because we tend to make everything a gray line. Because it makes us feel better about our sin. But the reality is, the truth of the matter is that all sin separates us from an all-loving, all-holy, all-just, all-perfect God who created everything. I mean, you may be good compared to old Jimmy down at the saloon who drinks beer every day, has six kids with four different women. He's had three different wives. You might be good. I'm not really thinking of anybody that just totally came to my head. But, but how good are you compared to a perfect God? I don't think we quite understand perfection. I don't think we can really grasp our mind on how perfect God is. And if we compare ourselves to a perfect God, we look like Joseph Stalling. Our God is the perfect standard. And all people are separated by this line. I mean, is there growth? Yeah, I get it. There's growth once we accept Christ. But, but a little baby in the womb is just as alive as I am today speaking to you. A 90-year-old in the nursing home is just alive as some of the teenagers in this room. 
You see, we are either alive or we are dead. And Robbie Zacharias, who just passed away, the great apologetic, and and Billy Graham, the, the great evangelist who passed away just a little while ago, they're dead on this earth. They're just as dead as the Apostle Paul who died over 2,000 years ago. But neither one of them, I love this part, neither one of them has any less days to live in heaven. Dead is dead. And if we don't have this righteousness because of our faith in Christ's death and resurrection on the cross, then we are dead. And our God, He had a problem, but, but our God... He knows everything. He is perfect and He has this this solution. You see, God is perfect, but this world and we, we are not perfect. We have sin. And our God, He loves us enough. He loves us enough that He had this plan to, to glorify His Son through His death and His resurrection. The perfect solution for us black hearted sinners. I mean, have we really thought about that? I mean, how much does our God love us? Can we really grasp the amount of love that our God has for us? I don't think we remotely fathom it. God, He knows exactly, and I take great comfort in this, who His are. If you are God's, if you are God's, then the Holy Spirit is working in your life. And on Tuesday... My heart was a little bit broken. I saw that this lead singer for Hawk Nelson, John Steigart, said that he was no longer a believer. And I looked at some of these questions that he proposed, his public denial of God. And as I read them, I couldn't feel, I didn't, I felt like I was going back in time. Eight, maybe nine years ago. You see, I looked my wife in the face and I told her that I did not believe in God. There was no God and you are stupid for believing in a God. I told the same thing to my mom. You see, I was struggling with life. I did not believe in a God and the Holy Spirit was not working in my life. I grew up in this church. I have spent at least one Sunday every year of my life in this church. 39 years. Every Sunday. And I remember hating music. Even the beautiful music that we heard today, I could not stand it as I sat back and I couldn't wait to get out of this place and then something happened. You see, I had heard all the Bible stories. And yet I had these same questions that Steingart had. And this first question that he brings up. This first question that he brings up fits so well with our parable. But we have to look at these other ones. If we're going to answer this first question that he brings up. And that question is, if God is loving, why does he send people to hell? Steingart goes on to say, my whole life. My whole life, people said, you have to go back to what the Bible says. I found, however, that consulting and discussing the Bible did not answer my questions. It only amplified it. I felt the same way. But then the Holy Spirit went to work. And before I read these next words, I want to paraphrase. And these words are not mine. They are Steingard's. And my wife told me I can use them, so if you don't like it, you can blame her. 
Just joking, honey. But I'm not sure if, if, if this phrase has quite the same power if I don't use this word. Listen to Steingard. Why does God seem so pissed off in the most of the Old Testament? And then all of a sudden, He's a loving Father in the New Testament. Why does He say not to kill, but instructs Israel to turn around and kill men, women, and children to take the promised land? Why does He tell Abraham to kill his son? More killing once again. And then basically say, just kidding, that was a test. Why? Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? More killing again. If God can do anything... Can he forgive someone without dying? I mean, my parents taught me to forgive people. Nobody dies in that scenario. I mean, these are some difficult questions. But this first one. I really want to look at these other questions so we can answer this first one. Why does God send people to hell? Let's start with the first one. My whole life, people said, you have to go back to what the Bible says. I found, however, that consulting and discussing the Bible did not answer my questions. It only amplified it. I remember asking these same questions. And then when the Holy Spirit took over, it was like, whoa, whoa. I remember growing up and, and looking at Liz Ostrander, thinking that she was crazy. I did not understand what was going on. I, my mom was nuts. I mean, what happened what happened? Did I all of a sudden get smarter? Or like the naturalist would say, I got dumber? I mean, come on. The Holy Spirit was working in my life. And I think so often, especially in a Baptist church, we tend to downplay the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's not fair. I mean, look back at your life. I can only look back at my own and it was an absolute mess. I mean, it may have looked okay on the outside, but inside, it was like most of these young people's bedrooms. It was stinky, and, and it was a disaster, and you had no idea how to clean it up, how to even begin. But then the Holy Spirit took over. The Holy Spirit took over, and I love Revelation 3.20. I mean, Jesus, He is knocking at the door. And we have to open it. These questions that, that John Steingart is bringing forth, at least in my experience, is from a man that has not surrendered his life to Christ. And I don't know the heart of everybody in this room or everybody in this community. And nobody is saying that, that John is, is not going to be a Christian someday. Nobody's saying that. But right now, right now at this moment, he is denying Christ. And the Holy Spirit is not helping him understand the Word of God and who God is. I'm here to tell you that our God, our God is the same in the Old Testament. He's the same in the New Testament. He was the same in the beginning. He's the same now. God cannot change. Because if He could, He would cease to be God. And that's not possible. I mean, if you read some of the love in the Old Testament, I love Deuteronomy 7. 7 through 8. The Lord did not set His love on you nor choose you because you were in number more than any other peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord, He loved you and kept the oath which He swore to His forefathers. The Lord, He brought you out by a mighty hand and He redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I mean, what a loving Father that takes His people 
and saves them from this tyranny. And if we look in the New Testament, we look at John chapter 3, probably one of the, the best chapters in all of the Bible. We all know John 3.16, but just 20 verses later, it reads this. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. The Old Testament and the New Testament are the same over and over again. Let's look at this question, this next question. Why does he say not to kill, but he instructs Israel to turn around and kill men, women, and children to take the promised land? And as I read that, I used to struggle with that very statement. But then I thought about it. How would a loving father allow you to hold on to these things that are causing all these sins and problems in your lives? Some of us, we want Jesus, but we, we hold on to this greed, this, this lust, this, this anger, this righteous anger, unrighteous anger, and unforgiveness. And I thank God, I thank God that we have Jesus. These are the ways of the bad and the unrighteous, and the only thing that makes us different is that we have Jesus, an advocate for us in heaven. And on top of that, the Canaanites, you understand, they are sacrificing their own children in the arms of Molech, a statue. You say, Pastor Zach, I'm not sacrificing my own children. Maybe not. But I don't know about you, but my habits are not helping them. When I neglect them, it's, it's neglecting to raise them in a way that honors and displays a right relationship with God and with them. What am I doing when I get angry at them for just being kids? When I spend more time focused on my phone than I do raising them and, and teaching them the ways of God? I ask FBC, are, are you raising your children? Do your actions speak God? Do your children see it? Or are we choosing to ignore them? How are we raising our children so often I do it. I lie to myself. I try to make justifications for how I'm raising my kids. And I, I hold on to the sin in my life. And yet God still loves me. He loves me enough to not let me hold on to these things, but to give me the tools, to give us the tools to conquer, to kill the things in our life that are going to pull us down and away from God. And not only that, what happens to the Israelites? What happens to the Israelites when they do not do what God has commanded them and they let some of these Canaanites live? Well, if we look at Jeremiah 32, 35, we see that they too are sacrificing their children to Molech. And I often think about it, the, the role of the Holy Spirit here. Not everybody had the Holy Spirit helping them. And, and I have the Holy Spirit, and I still struggle in some of these areas. Can you imagine not having the Holy Spirit? God had no choice but to rid these things from their life. But I still love it that God, He still in all of this loves them. He still calls them His people. He forgives them, and He, and he loves them. And they are the ones that broke the covenant. We are the ones that break the covenant. God does, and He never will. God, in all of that, when we break the covenant, He provides the solution in the grace of His Son. 
I ask, do we love His Son? Do we put our faith in His Son? That is the line in the sand. That is the line. The cross is the line. And I get it. We may never be able to fully obey His commandments this side of heaven, but we understand love. Look at your children. Have you ever ceased to love them? Even in this pandemic, have you ever ceased to love them? We can love Jesus. And we can love Him unconditionally. Let's look at the next question. Why does He tell Abraham to kill his son? More killing again. And then basically say, just kidding. That was a test. It's because John Steigart is not seeing Genesis right. He is missing the beauty of this story in Genesis 22. The story of Abraham and Isaac. And Pastor Bill, he talked about it last week. When we come to Christ, when we believe in God, we give everything, and that includes our families. And I don't mean killing them. I don't mean that. We, we offer them up to God. We raise our children and our families. We, we raise them in a way that glorifies God. You see Abraham in Genesis 22. Abraham believes that, that God is going to provide the offering. Even if that means raising Isaac from the dead. Abraham trusts. Abraham has surrendered to God. He loves God more than anything. He is willing to do anything for God. And thank God that God does not require us to kill our offspring. I'm not going to say that I thought about killing my offspring, but maybe grounding them a couple weeks during this pandemic. I just thank God that He's not like me. That God is not like me and He doesn't have the same thoughts. But God, He asks us, He asks us to raise our children differently than the death that is in this world. And God, He gives us this ultimate sacrifice of His Son. And Isaac could not and will not ever be the perfect sacrifice. Only Jesus. There's so much more to this than just a test like John Steigart says. It's a symbolization of God's willingness to offer up His Son. It's a symbolization of dying to ourselves and picking up our cross daily. This is not just a story of death, but a story about God working a miracle and bringing dead to life. And with God, I love this. Death is, is not the end, but merely the beginning when it's based on our faith in Jesus. Which leads us to this next question. Why does Jesus have to die for our sins? More killing once again. If God can do anything... Can He forgive without someone dying? I mean, my parents. My parents taught me to forgive people. Nobody dies in that scenario. I've heard this particular question over and over again. And we tend to think that God can do anything. My youth proved it on Wednesday. But what if I told you that God cannot sin? God cannot change? God cannot go against his attributes. God cannot go against His nature. Romans 6.23 says that for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. God cannot change the wages of sin. God cannot overlook sin, but He provides the solution. And how loving is that? Our God is so loving that He provides the solution. 
And then look at this. God, he takes on the vengeance, the wrath in this world so that we don't have to live with it. We, we are not able to function with vengeance on our heart. It consumes us. But God, in his perfection, in his completeness, in all of his attributes, he perfectly carries out vengeance and love where we would mess up everything. Sin and death are synonyms. They go together. But, but God, He provided the death of His Son, which ultimately gives us life. And, and we are resurrection, resurrected. There is life. I ask, can we really understand the value of life without death? Can we understand joy without sorrow, righteousness without evil, and heaven without hell? God does not use hell to scare us. He tells us about hell because it is a reality and He loves us too much to not tell us about the reality. He must tell us the truth. Which leads us to this last question. If if God is loving, why does He send people to hell? I mean, does God really send people to hell? And C.S. Lewis would say that there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, Thy will be done. And to those whom God says, in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. And in Psalms 81, God is talking to the Israelite people. And understand that, that all the Israelites haven't put their faith in God. And He says, but my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. Go back to Matthew 13, starting at verse 49. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace and the fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The righteous. They will be taken to heaven. And the unrighteous, they will be destroyed. But God doesn't destroy in the way that we think. You see, God still sustains those who are dead. And they will be eternally separated from God. And I look at this weeping and gnashing of teeth. This fire and this this furnace. And I don't know about you, when, when I have this love for Jesus, this separation for God seems way worse than separation and being thrown in the fiery furnace and the gnashing and weeping of teeth. I want no part in being separated from God. And I get it, right? Weeping and gnashing of teeth sounds terrible. And I think probably my wife would say that sounds way worse than a fiery furnace. She hates it when people slurp or chew with their mouth open, grind their teeth. She doesn't like any of that stuff. It would be terrible for her. And weeping, we all know weeping. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral, but... Man, when it's a small child, it's one of the most awful sounds you've ever heard. I can't imagine living my whole life hearing that over and over again. But I love that God knows who are His. We're responsible for our actions. 
And God is only going to give us what we wanted. But in all of that, God has made it so simple for us to come to Christ. And yet we fight it. We try to make it so difficult. The gospel is as simple as reaching out and grabbing the gift that God has given us. Having faith of just a little mustard seed and allowing Him to transform us. I ask, if God was not loving, would He have provided the solution? Man, I read this parable over and over again this week. And I'm telling you, this is one of my least favorite topics to talk about. I grew up in this very church. And I remember, and and don't judge me for this, I didn't understand exactly how it worked, but, but I bet I gave my life to Christ well over 200 times. I remember the anxiety of Revelation. Not wanting to read it because I was so scared of it. Feeling over and over again, being ashamed of my sin. And yet not understanding this freedom and this wonderfulness in Christ. I did not really want Christ. I didn't want to burn in hell. I compare it to training my dogs. I know it's not a great analogy, but... I mean, can I train my dogs with this affection... Can I provide for their needs? Can I love them and give them purpose? They get to the point where they want nothing more to be with their master. And they start to be obedient because it allows them to be with their master and and feel that love from him. That value of trusting in their master. And on the other side, I can train them into submission by beating them and using a, a shock collar incorrectly and forcing them to obey me out of fear and they can be afraid of the consequences of not obeying me. You see, I choose the first. But the truth of the matter is, is there's a little bit of both in every relationship. You see, I may shower my dogs with love, but there still must be a punishment when they do something wrong. We can't get away from it. And maybe we shouldn't punish to these extremes that I'm talking about, but there must be a healthy fear. And God, He punishes. He can either punish in in small ways or He can punish in the ultimate way, which is hell. And I ask, as I look at this particular thing, as I, as I close this down, is, is hell preached from this pulpit because of a healthy fear for God and the reality that it exists? Or is it preached from this pulpit to drive fear into your hearts and to your soul? I would say the first. Do you choose Jesus because you love Him, because He, he is the completion of your soul, because you desire to be with Jesus? Or do you love Him because you don't want to be cast away like the the bad fish in this parable? Let's look at the text one more time. Matthew 13, starting at verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad they threw away. And so it will be in the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as I read this, there is such a a fine line. And I believe in a sovereign God. But our God does not send people to hell. People send themselves to whatever their hearts desires. 
I know what type of fish I am. I know that someday I will be in the presence of Jesus. I know that because I love Him, because I have put my faith and I rest in Jesus. But that's not true for everyone. I hope that's true for everyone in here. I hope to God. I hope that's true for for people in this community. But you know there's people in this community that are separated from God. In the end, they will be separated. Some will be evil, and there will be some that are good. But those that are good, let's never forget this. If I could say anything to finish this sermon, let's not forget this. That what makes us good is the one. The one, Jesus, who we put our faith in. He is the one that is righteous. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I thank you. I thank you that you are righteous and that you are holy and that you are good. Lord, I thank you that you love us and that you perfectly display vengeance and wrath and justice and you perfectly display every attribute. Your nature is perfect. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place that you would just allow us to trust in you more, to trust in your perfection. To feel so small in comparison to who you are. And to humble ourselves and to, and to reach out to others. And to love others so that the good fish can be more. And that they can put their faith in you and allow the Holy Spirit to transform their lives. Lord, we ask that you will save us and that we can put our faith and our trust in you, Lord Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.